like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The word imitators is the Greek word from which we get our word mimic. So Paul is exhorting us to mimic God, to imitate God. Now that seems like a pretty tall order until he adds the words we're to do so as beloved children. We are God's children. And children naturally imitate their parents. Lindsay Joe and I were going through the family album the other day and we noticed there were a number of pictures that indicated how much our children imitate us. The one that stood out to me was Grandpa Bob was over at the house fixing the dishwasher, so he's laying face down on the kitchen floor with his hands up inside the dishwasher. And Lindsay's little baby, she's got some of his tools and she's sitting on his back trying to take his back pocket off. She's obviously mimicking her grandpa. And I guess my favorite picture is the one when I've got my lawn chair and I'm out on the patio. Got my left leg crossed over my right leg. I've got my Bible on my lap. I've got a glass of iced tea sitting on the ground next to me. And Shane, who was in preschool at the time, saw me. And he went and got his little lawn chair and brought it out and brought his Bible, crossed his left leg over his right leg. Couldn't even read, but he's looking at his Bible with a glass of iced tea next to him. Children imitate their parents. That's a fact that can be both encouraging and embarrassing to those of us who are parents. But we are the children of God, and as such, we're to imitate our Father. And in these last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is dealing with our practical Christian life, which he refers to over and over again as our walk. Chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk worthy with a humble walk of unity. Chapter 4, verse 17, we're to walk different. Chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, we're to walk in light. Chapter 5, verse 15, we're to walk in wisdom. And all of these exhortations of the last three chapters are summed up in this phrase in chapter 5 and verse 1. We are to be imitators of God. God is the one who expresses true humility. In the Godhead, we see true unity. God is holy. God is love. God is light. God is wisdom. So all the goals that we have as Christians are just characteristics of our God. And I don't know about you, but it's a pretty awesome statement to say that we are to imitate God. I think of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In my own merits, I ought to flee from a holy God, but by His grace, He has made me His child, and He invites me to imitate him. Now that's not that unusual a commandment in Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 40, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And in 1 Peter 1, 16, we read, you shall be holy for I am holy. You say, well, that's impossible. Well, yes, it is, apart from grace. But you see, God has made it possible. That's evident in salvation because at the point of salvation, you became a different person. 
2 Peter 1.4 says at that point we became partakers of the divine nature. And chapter 4 of Ephesians verse 24 says we became a new person created in the likeness of God. It's also evident in sanctification, which is really just the process of our becoming like God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. As we behold Him... We become like Him. So it's evident in our salvation. It's evident in our sanctification. It will one day be evident in our glorification because John describes it this way in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and yet it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So we are God's children. We share His nature. We will one day share His likeness completely, And so Paul's exhortation to us is that we are to imitate our Father. And the area he focuses on in our passage is love. Notice verse 2. And walk in love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. If we're going to imitate Him, we're going to have to walk in love. But I like the way Paul words this. He doesn't say we're to feel love. He doesn't say we're to fall in love. He doesn't say we're to talk love. He says we're to walk love. Love is not a theory. Love is not simply our intentions. Love is not a gushy feeling. Love is practical. Love leaves footprints. We are to walk in love. 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So Paul gives us the exhortation to walk in love. And then he gives us some reasons as well, which is consistent with what we saw at the end of chapter 4, where he gave us a reason along with each exhortation. Because he knows that the key to renewing our actions is renewing our minds. So he tells us to walk in love, and I see three reasons he gives us, which are all in verse 1. The first is, because you have been forgiven. And that's seen in the word, therefore. Therefore, is basing it on what he said previously. And the last thing he said in chapter 4, if you'll notice, is just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. He is linking love with forgiveness. The fact of our forgiveness is the motivation for our love. Jesus said that same thing in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was in the, house, in the house of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And a woman came in who was a notorious sinner, probably a prostitute. She came in and she wept at Jesus' feet. She kissed them. She wiped them with her hair and she anointed them with oil. Meanwhile, Simon was judging her and judging Jesus for having anything to do with her. And so Jesus told the story. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. When they were unable to pay, he forgave them both. And then he asked Simon the question, which of them do you think will love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And then he applies it. He says, you didn't bother to wash my feet when I came in, but she has washed them with her tears. You didn't bother to give me a customary greeting kiss when I came in the door. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she got here. And you didn't even anoint my head with oil. She has anointed 
my feet. The reason she was expressing so much love is because she realized so much forgiveness from God. And the key to our love is an appreciation for our forgiveness. You see, if you think that you only owe God about 50 denarii, just a few parking tickets, something you could work off on the weekends, if you think that you deserve to stand forgiven before a holy God, then I guarantee you that love will not flow from that mindset. The only thing that will flow from that mindset is a judgmental spirit because you are self-righteous. But if you realize that your debt was great, if you can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners, if you can say with the publican in the temple, I am the sinner, if you understand that your, great, your debt was so great that it deserved the flames of hell forever, and then if you appreciate that God has forgiven you everything, the only reasonable, reasonable response from that is to love. So the first reason he gives us is you have been forgiven. Love ought to flow out of that. Second reason is you are God's child. And we see that at the end of verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We already talked about this, but he's not asking you to do something you're incapable of. You have been given God's nature. And so, like father, like son. It's already in your spiritual genes. You are a new creation. And you have the capability now to imitate your heavenly Father. And then the third reason he gives us is that you are loved. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 1. As beloved children. Now in our day, we're far too familiar with the reality that having a child is not the same as loving a child. Giving a child your name is not the same as giving a child your love. And so Paul tells us here, we are beloved children. God has given us more than His name. He has given us His love. Now that's another phrase that I find to be pretty amazing. Because God is saying the same thing about you and I as He said about Jesus in Matthew 3.17 when He spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. God is saying, You are His beloved child. And Jesus confirmed that in John 17.23 when speaking to the Father, He said, You didst love them even as you have loved me. God loves you with the same love that he has for his beloved son. Now I would say that those are pretty good reasons for us to walk in love. He's made us his children. He loves us just as much as he loves his only son and he has forgiven us all our debt. You say, all right, I want to walk in love. How do I do it? Well, Paul gives us a blueprint in verse 2. He says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved us. We're to walk in the steps of Christ. He is our example. Now, that's consistent with Scripture because Christ is always our example. In Romans 15.3, we're told to please others rather than ourselves as Christ did. Romans 15.7, we're to accept others as Christ accepted us. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says we're to give as Christ gave. Philippians 2 says we're to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. 1 Peter 2 says we're to suffer the way Christ suffered without retaliating. 1 John 3.16 says we're to lay down our lives for our brothers the way Christ laid down his life. 
And John sums it all up in 1 John 2, 6 when he says, we are to walk as Christ walked. And right here in our passage, chapter 4, verse 32, he says we're to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Chapter 5, verse 2, we're to love as Christ loved. Now, how did he love? Well, he tells us that as well. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Christ loved by giving Himself up. That is the expression of love. To give yourself up. He says the same thing later in the same chapter in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? And gave Himself up for her. The world measures love by what can I get out of it? God measures love by what can I give? best definition of love is love is desiring the very best for another no matter what it costs me and expecting nothing in return. Christ desired the very best for us that we would be children of God and join heirs with Him no matter what it cost Him, death on the cross and expecting nothing in return because we really had nothing to offer. You know, I think sometimes as Christians we walk around with the attitude that that God got a good catch when he got me. What a lucky God to have me as his child. You know, when I read Scripture carefully, I find out that I was not lovable. I was not lovely. In fact, you know, it's interesting that in John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, Then he lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus demonstrated greater love by laying down his life for his enemies. If Jesus had asked the question, what am I getting out of this relationship? The only answer would have been animosity. But he laid down his life anyway. Because he wasn't asking the question, what am I getting out of it? He was asking the question, what am I giving. And that's love. And we're to walk in His footsteps. In fact, the word He uses here is the same word He used back in chapter 4 and verse 19. They're speaking about the Gentiles, He said, having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality. They have given themselves over to sensuality. That is, they have abandoned themselves to self-indulgence. We, like Christ, are to give ourselves over for others. We are to abandon ourselves to self-sacrifice. And Paul spells that out even further in the rest of verse 2. He says, And he gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now notice those two little phrases. He gave himself up for us to God. That's important. He didn't give himself to us. See, in love, I don't give myself to someone else to let them dictate my life. I give myself to God for others. And that's what Jesus did. And it's expressed in two words here. He gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice. Both of those words remind us that Christ's death was not an accident. He gave himself as an offering. That's the idea that it was willingly. In John 10, 18, he said, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. 
I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus gave his life willingly. And then he was also a sacrifice, which indicates that he gave himself totally. It wasn't a donation. It wasn't a partial payment. When you eat bacon and eggs, the chicken made a donation, the pig made a sacrifice. And Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. It wasn't partial. It wasn't a donation. He gave himself totally. And what did God the Father think about that? Look at that last phrase in verse 2. It was a fragrant aroma. It brought a pleasing sweetness to the nostrils of God. Now what could make the death of God's only begotten Son sweet to him. How could Isaiah say in Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him? Well, I think there's several answers to that. Number one is because it satisfied the justice of God. God was pleased because his wrath was satisfied. In Hebrews 10.12, we read, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Christ paid the price that sin demanded. That's why on the cross he said, it is finished. God is satisfied. And so his death was pleasing to God because it paid his wrath. But there's a second reason. And that's found in verse 2 in those two little words, for us. God could look at Christ's death as sweet because of what it accomplished for us. It took us from sinners to saints, from outsiders to family, from children of Satan to children of God. You say, well, why would that be sweet to God? Well, because He loves us. And love desires the very best, no matter what it costs. And then I think there's a third reason we could point to, and that is because God is always pleased with sacrificial love. He's pleased with it when he saw it in his son, and he's pleased with it when he sees it in our lives as we walk in love as well. In fact, take your Bible for a moment and look over to the next book, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance... I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Paul received a gift from the church at Philippi. And notice how he describes it at the end of the verse. It is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The people at Philippi gave Paul a gift, and in giving it, Paul says, it brought a fragrant aroma to God which I think allows me to say that every time we act in sacrificial love, it fills heaven with fragrance. Which I guess should make us look at the other side of that, that maybe every time we don't, there's an odor in heaven. You see, this is the way God is. And when, when He sees us imitating Him, 
When he sees this same kind of sacrificial love demonstrated in our lives, it pleases him. Nothing makes him happier than seeing his children walk in love. I love the words of the song in our hymn book by Annie Johnson Flint. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God continues to give. And heaven is filled with fragrance whenever we respond in that same way in sacrificial love. We're to walk in love as he set the example. And then in contrast to that, the world has an imitation love. In contrast to God's love, the world always has a counterfeit. God's love is self-sacrificing. The world's love is self-indulgent. And in the rest of the passage we want to look at this morning, verses 3 to 7, Paul talks about the world's love and tells us we need to stay away from it. Now, the world is desperately seeking love. If you listen to the songs or watch the movies or pay attention to the books, they all have this idea. But if you look closely, you'll see that what it's talking about is, what can I get out of it? It's always a self-centered kind of love. There's no giving, there's no commitment involved, and that's why usually it's out of the context of marriage. Because when the world talks about love, they're talking about desire, they're talking about lust, they're talking about self-pleasure, they're talking about falling in and out of love because there's no commitment there, it's conditional. And if you ask somebody who the ideal person is for them, they always point to some movie star. Somebody who looks perfect, Somebody who can come and answer all my needs. You see, if you look at the personal lives of most movie stars, they can't stay married to anybody. Because the love that the world is describing is a fantasy love. It doesn't exist. It's elusive. And what's interesting is, the kind of love that says, what can I get, will never satisfy and will never survive. But God's love, which says, what can I give, both satisfies and survives. The Bible says it never fails. And having exhorted us to walk in God's love, Paul is now going to describe for us the world's love and tell us to stay away from it. Notice verse 3. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, he names three things here. The first is immorality, or your Bible may say fornication. It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. It's a word that is the broadest description of sexual sin. It describes sexual sin of any kind outside of God's intended context. Now, let me add to that that sex is not sin. God created sex. It's beautiful in his sight in the right context. But what the world does is it takes it out of God's context and distorts it and then sells the idea that it's more satisfying, more rewarding, more appealing outside of the marriage bond, and that's a lie. That's why Paul said back in chapter 4 and verse 22 that these are the lusts of deceit. They promise something they can't fulfill. In fact, the world takes the physical act that God has designed and removes it from the marriage relationship and calls it making love. It's not making love at all. It's making sin. 
And Paul says it's immorality, and we're to stay away from it. Second word here is impurity. This word is used 11 times in the New Testament. Once it's used in Matthew 23, 27, where Jesus speaks of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. There he associates this word with a rotting, decaying corpse. The other 10 times it's used in the New Testament, it's used to describe sexual sin. So what he's talking about is rotten, filthy, sexual sin. We're to stay away from immorality. We're to stay away from impurity. And then the third word he uses is rather interesting here. He says, or greed, covetousness. At a birthday party, it came time to serve the cake. A little boy named Brian blurted out, I want the biggest piece. And his mom scolded him saying, Brian, it's not polite to ask for the biggest piece. And so he looked back at her with a little confusion and said, well, then how do I get it? Covetousness, I don't have to explain to you. We understand it. But in this context, Paul is not talking about covetousness in general. He's talking about covetousness that is related to sexual sin. He mentioned it back in chapter 4 and verse 19 when he talked about impurity with greediness. It's mentioned in the 10th commandment. Exodus 20 verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's that which is at the very heart of the world's counterfeit love. It's give me. It's greed. It's covetousness. And Paul says in this verse that these things are not even to be named among you. Why not? Well, look at the end of verse 3. He says, because you are saints. You are holy ones. You are ones that are set apart unto God. You say, well, this verse isn't speaking to me because I'm faithful to my wife. I haven't committed immorality. Uh, I don't get involved in that kind of thing. So I'm just going to sit here today and, and nobody's going to step on my toe. Well, you're wrong. Because if Paul didn't get you in verse 3, he gets you in verse 4. And look at that verse. He says, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The word filthiness means obscenity. That which is disgraceful. Not only are we not to do those things, Paul says we're not to talk about them. And then he mentions two ways that we talk about them. The first is silly talk. That's from the Greek word moron from which we get moron and the other word means to say and so it's a simple word he's saying talking like a moron and in the context what he means is he's talking about the person that just spews out obscenities without ever thinking of who's listening or what implications are the person who just spews it out like a moron that's the first way he talks about The second is, he says, coarse jesting. That's an interesting Greek word. It means that which is able to turn easily. And what he's talking about is the person who has the clever wit who can take what you say and turn it so that it has a sexual innuendo to it. So it has a second meaning to it. 90% of the humor on television is done this way. You take a, a, a naive statement and you twist it to have an impure meaning. Paul says there's to be no filthiness, whether it's spoken openly like a moron, 
or whether it's wrapped in humor to make it more palatable. Paul says it's all got to go. Why? He says at the end of verse 4, it's not fitting. That kind of talk doesn't fit who you are. You are a saint. You are a child of God. You are to walk worthy of who you are in Christ. You say, well, if I cut out all that type of talking and thinking, what am I going to do with all my extra time? Well, Paul tells you at the end of verse 4, but rather giving thanks. Giving thanks is one of the most unselfish things you can do. It stands in stark contrast to greed. Greed says, I deserve more. Thankfulness says, I don't even deserve this. Greed is the attitude that takes. Thankfulness is the attitude that gives. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 15 tells us that giving thanks is a sacrifice of praise to God. Thankfulness is actually giving in itself because we're giving a sacrifice of praise to God. And then verse 5, he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, Paul has taken the sins that he mentioned in verse 3, and he's attached them to persons. In verse 3, it was immorality, impurity, covetousness. Now he talks about the immoral person, the impure person, the covetous man. He's talking about habitual practice. He's talking about the person whose life is characterized by these things, and Paul says these persons do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that these people can't be saved. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Paul uses some of these same terms, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Paul is not saying these people can't be saved. These are the people we used to be. What he's saying is that the person who is characterized by this kind of lifestyle is not saved. The person who is characterized by this kind of lifestyle is demonstrating that they're not, and they're demonstrating that they have a different destiny from you. They're not a child of God, and so they don't have an inheritance. In fact, Paul adds the word, they are an idolater. This is the person who is obsessed to the point of devotion. He is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. He's the one described in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 where it talks about people who are enemies of the cross and it says their God is their belly. Their God is their own desires. Whatever comes, they respond to because they're really worshiping themselves. And Paul's point is rather simple. He's saying those people who walk that way have a different destiny from you. And so you ought to have a different walk. And then notice what he says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. People today are saying, hey, everybody's doing it. And when it comes down to it, everybody's going to get to heaven anyway. God's too good to send anybody to hell. And Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. The truth is, it's because of these very kinds of sin that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I don't want to be joking 
about the very sins that are going to bring the wrath of God. Because that's not funny. And so Paul closes in verse 7 by saying, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Because their destiny is different from yours, and because God's wrath is aimed at them for these very sins, don't you participate in them. Don't do them, and don't even talk about them. Instead, Paul says, you're to walk in love.